Thank you. I couldn't help but notice that the baby had red hair. <laughs> Not sure what that means. God's favorite, I suppose. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, uh, you want to turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, 14 and 9, 6 and 7. So Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 and 9, 6, and 7. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we talk about the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, your Son, fully God also taking on full humanity. When we talk about the scene in Bethlehem, and we see it through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth. We pray, Lord, that we would be in awe, that we would respond with acceptance, that we would be filled with worship, and that this Christmas season would find us as great worshipers of a great God. Guide our time, we ask. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As a young child, I had the privilege with my family of living in the Philippines. And then as an adult, I was able to go back, Betty Ann and I, where we spoke at a REACH Global Evangelical Free Church Missionary Conference for all Asian missionaries. And although I've passed it several times, I've actually not gone to any of the major dumps, garbage dumps, in Manila. But I've seen them, and I'm aware of what goes on in those major garbage dumps. It was in 1996 that the Smoky Mountain Dump had 30,000 inhabitants. The world was up in arms. How could you allow 30,000 people to live in a garbage dump? And so the local government in Manila took those women, children, and men people made in the Imago Dei in the image of God. And they promised them that if they would leave the dump, there would be housing for them in Manila. Now, if you know anything about Manila today, it is a city of 15 million people. At least 40% of it lives in abject poverty. And so there is no housing for these 30,000 people that were forced from the Smoky Mountain dump. And so all they did was go over to the Payata dump, where today it is estimated that 100,000 people live. The average child by age three or four gets up seven days a week at the crack of dawn and spends her or his entire day sorting through millions of metric tons of garbage. 
looking for food for themselves and their families. But it's not just the abject impoverished that live in these dumps. I think of a gal named Jane Walker. She has been in the Tondo dump since 1996. Today she is 55 years old. She left a rather lucrative career to go to the dump. The media calls her the angel of the dump. The kids, she's in a community of 4,000. The kids just simply call her ma'am. She's created a school. She hands out hugs every day to all of the kids. She's taught them to create micro-businesses like creating and collecting plastic and selling it back. She has come to share the love of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to romanticize Jane Walker's life. She lives in a very dangerous place. She lives without the amenities that any of us live with. And she lives in a place of incredible sickness and disease. But she has incarnated her life in such a way that she lives to share the love of Christ with individuals who have nothing, sharing with people who have incredible need. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came for people with incredible need. Not simply 4,000 on the Tondo dump. I don't want to minimize that. That's an incredible sacrifice. But Jesus left the glories of heaven, the splendors of heaven, to come down to earth, fully God, to take on human flesh, to purchase back a people who by faith would believe in him, who by faith would recognize, admit, confess that we are sinners, and accept Jesus' death as the payment of our sin, and his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave, and we would accept him as Savior and Lord. 700 years before that event, Isaiah the prophet recorded it. He talks about it in several chapters of the book named after him. We're going to look at a few of the most famous proclamations. We'll look at Isaiah 7:14, and then chapter 9, 6 and 7. And I'm fairly confident that you know these texts, but I'm less confident that most of us know the background that caused Isaiah to write them. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, that is Mary, shall conceive and bear a son, that's Jesus, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it, with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Now you and I know these texts. We've heard these texts. We hear it in Handel's Messiah. We know them well. But again, I wonder if we understand the background that caused God to instruct Isaiah to write these texts, the prophetic texts of the birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is writing in the 8th century B.C. He's writing from a time period of 739 to 701 B.C. Understand what's going on in the geographic region that you and I know of as Israel. 200 years earlier, in 930 B.C., Israel split into two nations. The ten northern tribes, a much larger section, retained the name Israel. The two southern tribes, very small, took the name Judah. And for the last 200 years, there have been a series of skirmishes and fights between them. Quite frankly, the ten northern tribes are like the big bully brother or sister, the older one, and the two southern tribes are like the youngest child in the family that is pushed around and bossed around. Now, I'm the baby of my family. I'm actually the youngest of all of my cousins. And I know what it's like to be the youngest cherub pushed around by you older bullies, and you know who you are. Thank the good Lord that the baby is God's favorite. At least that evens things out. But think of what has happened in the last couple hundred years. We have a series of skirmishes. Israel has pushed and shoved and bullied Judah. And you know what happens when you bully someone? A time comes when the bully gets what she or he deserves, what they have coming to them. Now this is a time period in which you have the ten big northern tribes and the two southern tribes, but frankly, they're not very large, either one of them. And so they're not the big bully in town. The big bully in town is Assyria. Not Syria, Assyria. In fact, really, they're the big bully in town from about 900 to 600 B.C. for almost 300 years. They have a series of leaders that are like bad, bad Leroy Brown. We have Tiglath-Pilesar III. We have Shalmanesar. We have Sargon. We have Sargon II. We have Sennacherib. These individuals, you hear their name, it brings fear into your hearts. And what they have been doing is expanding their territory. They have gone into nation after nation, and they have brutalized the nation. They have taken the nation as captive. Because of this, the smaller nations like Israel and Syria fear for their lives. And so the king of Israel, Pekah, and the king of Syria, Rezin, they make an alliance. We call it the Syrio-Israelite Treaty. And they say to one another, if Assyria attacks either one, the other will come to the defense. So they think to themselves, Assyria won't attack them because if Assyria does that, there will be a two-front war. 
And so they feel secure. Having felt secure, what they decide to do is together they attack Judah. The big bullies go after the little nation. This is 2 Kings chapter 16. And that's when things begin to happen that should not have happened. The king of Judah, the little tiny nation, is Ahaz, not Ahab. You're familiar with him. Ahaz. And Ahaz doesn't consult God. Ahaz makes a decision out of fear. Ahaz doesn't seek out a prophet. He doesn't scour the word of God. He doesn't seek godly counsel. He makes a decision out of fear. And decisions made out of fear tend to be really bad decisions. And so he makes an alliance with the biggest bully of all, Assyria. And he figures that if he makes an alliance with Assyria, Assyria will attack Israel and the big bully will get what they have coming to him. Humanly speaking, it's probably brilliant. But in God's economy, it is disastrous. That's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 9 is all about. It's all about a mistake that we still make 2,700 years later. Let me change the word mistake. It's all about a sin that we still make 2,700 years later. The sin is this. They're pl placing their confidence in man, in a political scheme, in an army, in the Tao in the things of humanity. And God wants us to place our faith in the Christ of Christmas. And so it is with that setting that Isaiah begins to predict 700 years before the birth of Christ that the Christ of Christmas is coming, that God will take on human flesh, that you and I will have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he will become one of us. And rather than place our confidence in a political party, and frankly, some Christ followers do, to the point in which we replace Christ with a new Savior, a political party, a political scheme, and our confidence is not in the Christ of Christmas. And that's the sin that is all about Isaiah 1 to 9. And that's why he predicts the coming of the Messiah so that we will place our confidence in the Christ of Christmas, not in mankind, not in humanity, not in a political system, not in the Tao, not in the military, but in Christ. That's the setting of the prophecies of Isaiah 7 and 9. Today, where do we place our confidence? A bull or a bear market? Pro-MAGA or anti-MAGA? In an impeachment or not in an impeachment? In a treaty, in an alliance? These things are not unimportant. But they are secondary for a Christ follower. And God says, keep your eyes on the sovereign Christ of Christmas, who left the glories of heaven, took on human flesh, became one of us, so that we have a high priest 
who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we have a high priest who is able to do everything. Keep our eyes on the Christ of Christmas. And so we read in verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. For unto us a Christ is born, a child is born, unto us a son is given. We know the account. We talked about it last week. We grew up with the account. It's a beautiful account, is it not? Here we have God who comes down in human flesh, comes down to a young couple. We have Joseph and we have Mary. He has recently celebrated his bar mitzvah and she her bat mitzvah. Her parents and his have gotten together. They've arranged for them to be husband and wife. A marriage takes two stages. They've gone through the first stage, the Caduceus or the Arison stage. They've exchanged vows. Yet she will live with her parents for the next 12 months. There will be no consummation of the marriage. She will live under the watchful eyes of mom and dad. And then at the second stage, the Nusian stage, they will be husband and wife and he will take her to live with him. But they haven't reached that stage. And she becomes pregnant. You remember an angel visits her and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, that which is in your womb is of the Holy Spirit. And she finds out that the Holy Spirit has overshadowed her, so the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And an angel visits Joseph. And an angel says, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and he will be great, and he will save my people from their sins. You remember the beautiful account, and you remember the young couple. Ease of royal birth. We read that very clearly in Scripture. He's of the Davidic line, but he's kind of removed from the money. He's a tecton. A respectable trade. He's a stone carpenter, but not a lucrative one. He's also a sadiq. He's, he's a man of God, a righteous God, a righteous man, even at age 13. And he takes Mary to be his wife. But they're poor. They have very little. I think that's purposeful because Jesus didn't come just for the big name or just for the power broker, we live in a day and age where your name gets you a seat at the table. They didn't have a seat at the table, but God gave them that seat. How poor are they? Well, if you notice what Luke chapter 2 says about it, it's the time period after the birth of Jesus. It's the eighth day. Let me read from Luke 2, 22 to 24. It says this. And when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him, Jesus, to the Lord. As is it written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. If you go to Leviticus 12, you know that was shorthand. That was big time shorthand. That was polite shorthand. Because the firstborn male son requires a lamb. That's what you're supposed to give. 
But then verse 8 says, if you're too poor for that, God will accept two birds. They're counted among the poorest of the poor. Because the Lord came for all people. He came for the powerful. He came for the middle class. He came for the weak. He came for all people. That's the Christ of Christmas. Place your hope. Place your confidence. Place my hope, my confidence in the Christ of Christmas. And what can we expect from the Christ of Christmas? That the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the part that says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. I look around and I see a lot of mess. I'm kind of a news junkie. I read uh, the British Broadcasting Corp, their, their news every day, and I read the Jerusalem Post every day, and, and a few others. You can find me for at least an hour very early in the morning reading the newspapers around the world. And we're a mess. The day I researched this, it was late October actually. In the same day, the parliament in England voted for Brexit to exit the European Union. And then one vote later, actually voted that they will not set a timetable or a date. Those don't possibly go together. Now, if you read last week, the Socialist Party was swept out of power. The Conservative Party was swept into power. And what do we have? Brexit will occur by January 31. Guaranteed, we've been told. We'll see. It's been three months of a mess. Then we look to our neighbor's up north, Canada, the election just brought Justin Trudeau uh, another term as prime minister. He did not win the popular vote. He actually lost it. But he won enough votes that he is prime minister again, his Labour Socialist Party. But they lost seats in Parliament. Like England, it's a divided nation. Go over to the Middle East. And here we have Benjamin Netanyahu and the Licked uh, Party that he's been prime minister of for a decade, and he's about to be indicted. And so we have a series of elections, and we have Gantz with the Blue and White Party, and we have Benjamin Netanyahu for the Lucid Party, and both have been given the opportunity to create a coalition government. Both have failed. In the last two weeks, we have Sa'ar from the Lukid party who's been given another opportunity, and he is probably going to fail. And you know what's going to happen in Israel? You think a presidential election every four years is a disaster? They're facing their third in 12 months. That's a country divided. And we look at our country and we say, well, we have two political parties and an independent group. We have Democrats and Republicans, but it's not that simple. We have socialists, and we have liberal, and we have progressive, and we have moderates, and we have libertarians, and we have conservatives, and we have the far right, and we have almost everything in between. We are a nation divided. 
I don't know about you, but I praise the Lord that the government is going to be upon Jesus' shoulders. Enough of what we have, we haven't done very well. But a day is coming, I think it's the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, when Jesus will rule, the government will be upon his shoulders, which will then fold into the new heaven and the new earth, and Christ will reign victoriously, King of kings and Lord of lords. That day is coming. We don't do well because mankind is filled with sinners. I think of an event at the end of the 18th century where in France, it's the French Revolution. And with the French Revolution, we have the peasants who rightly see inflation, a lack of jobs. They've been bossed around by King Louis XVI, who they will murder a few years later. And they storm a prison called the Bastille. And they throw France into a revolution, anarchy, for 10 years. And they destroy their own country from within and from without. Austria attacks. Spain attacks. England attacks. It is 10 years of utter chaos. And then a man named Napoleon Bonaparte, a savior, so he claims. He's going to set up a republic. That's what we have. He actually writes laws for freedom. And then four years later, in 1804, he declares himself emperor. And he throws all of Europe into tyranny. Come rule Jesus. Maranatha, come rule. And what kind of rule will Jesus bring? He gives us four characteristics. He says he will be the wonderful counselor. With apologies to Handel's Messiah, it's not wonderful comma counselor. Wonderful Pele actually modifies counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. You've got questions, he's got answers. You're unsure? He is totally sure. There is nothing that God does not know. Past, present, future. He even knows the possibilities that will not take place. What we call middle knowledge. He's the wonderful counselor. And he desires to give us wisdom. The problem in Isaiah's day is that the king doesn't consult God. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't bring wise counselors into his life. He doesn't look and scour scripture for parallels. He makes a decision out of fear, and it's a disastrous decision. But the Christ of Christmas, with application for 365 days a year, is a wonderful counselor. There is nothing that he does not know. And he tells us in James 1, 5, and 6, if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask for wisdom by faith, and he will grant it. He gives us 66 books of Scripture, not just as a historical lesson, but to learn and to apply into our life. He's the wonderful counselor, and he came for you. That's the Christ of Christmas. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. El Gabor. Say it with confidence. El Gabor, the mighty one. He not only has all wisdom, he has all power. There is nothing that God cannot do. 
Is there sickness in one's life? Fall on one's knees and ask God to intervene. He's the great physician. Do you need a touch of a miracle? He's capable. If it's within his will, he's utterly capable. He's El Gabor. He's the mighty God. There is nothing our God cannot do. Compare that to the kings of the 8th century B.C. Compare that to the rulers, conservative, liberal, middle of the road. It doesn't matter. None of them are El Gabor, mighty God. None of them are wonderful counselors. But we serve the Christ of Christmas. Fall upon your knees before the Christ of Christmas. And then he's everlasting father. Uh Uh-oh. Is that a little bit of a Trinitarian problem here? Has Isaiah mixed up? He's talking about the son and suddenly he goes to the father. Has he made a little Trinitarian mistake? Not at all. In the 8th century B.C., you call a monarch father. Everlasting father means Lord. He is Lord. That's who he is. And I've got to ask myself, is the Christ of Christmas Lord of my life? Is he Lord of your life? Not just words, reality. If he's Lord, it will be reflected in what we do with our time. Is he the priority? Is he Lord of our life? It will be reflected in what we do with the talents that he has entrusted to us. Are we serving him? Are we honoring him? Are we representing him to a world that is lost? If he's Lord, it will have implications for our treasures. Does he get the first and the best from us? Everlasting Father means he is Lord. He's a wonderful counselor, almighty God, El Gabor, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Prince of peace means he came to pretend no. He came to fulfill the barrier between us and God. That barrier is sin, and we are sinners in need of the Savior, and he came to be the Savior for us, to offer us peace, to to pay the penalty of our sin, which is death, and he went to the cross. And if by faith we would believe in him, we would be given eternal life. The Christ of Christmas, he's Lord. Is he Lord of your life? Is he Lord of mine? That's reflected by our time, our talents, our treasures. The Christ of Christmas. The government will be upon his shoulders. He's the one we place our confidence in. Not a political party that has become the savior for some. Not an army, not a man, not the Tao, not humanity. Our confidence is in Christ. And he's the prince of peace. He alone took on human flesh while retaining full deity. Worthy to die as a payment of our sin because he had no sin of his own. Laying down his life as a payment for us that if by faith we would believe in him and his resurrection, we would be granted eternal life. 
That's what Isaiah was talking about. When 700 years before the birth of Christ, he told us what Jesus would do. Is that the Christ of Christmas in your life? Is it the Christ of Christmas in mine? Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 7 and 9, and we could have gone to 11 and other places. I thank you for prophecy that was fully fulfilled in the life of Christ. I thank you for prophecy of the Christ of Christmas, who came to save, who came to redeem, who demands the Lordship of us, who wants our confidence in him, not in the surroundings of which we live. Father, we're not oblivious to what goes on around us. We're certainly participants, and, and rightfully so. But allow us to put our ultimate confidence, our greatest confidence, in King Jesus, your Son. And thank you that you would allow him, willingly he came, for us. And we praise you. And if there's somebody here today that does not know your son Jesus, his Savior, may they, by faith, admit as we all must that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And by faith, accept Jesus' death as a payment of their sin and his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave. And Father, throughout the next few days and throughout the next year, may we all worship the Christ of Christmas. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.